Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. All right. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Christine. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today, Christine. For our loyal listeners out there, the name may sound familiar as Christine is my wife, and I'm glad she's finally here to join in on the fun. Christine is a pediatrician at a private practice, something she's wanted to do since she was five years old. Christine enjoys the suburban life with our family, where our son, Keir, at nine months, somehow rules the house. In fact, we're taking a gamble right now with both of us being on this podcast while he sleeps. Hopefully, he will stay asleep. Christine also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. This week, we'll be jumping into 1990s comedy Home Alone, directed by Chris Columbus, who is also known for Adventures in Babysitting, Mrs. Doubtfire, the first two Harry Potter movies, and of course, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Other movies that would have been in theaters with Home Alone include Kindergarten Cop, Edward Scissorhands, Rocky V, Dances with Wolves, and The Godfather Part 3. For this episode, I will be in the quizzer's seat. Home Alone stars Macaulay Culkin, who is a kid who conveniently gets left home alone. He has a giant family who, for some reason, decided to take everyone to Paris to visit other relatives, even more of their giant family. And because of a bunch of mishaps, somehow Kevin gets left home alone. At the same time, the notorious, the infamous wet bandits are prowling the neighborhood to scout out which houses they plan to rob for all kinds of goods while people are away from the holidays. Of course, Kevin figures this out and has to defend his home with his life. And I'll save the rest for the conversation. I brought this movie to us today because this is one that Christine and I watch on an annual basis, at least annually during the holidays. So it only seemed apt at this holiday season that we would talk about this, especially on the episode uh, My Wife is Joining Us. It's something that we really enjoy. Uh, Is it maybe the most critically acclaimed movie? No, but I have a great time every time I watch it. And that even continued when I watched it this year, preparing for this episode. And I also do like how, even though you can, you know, poke holes at the plot here or there, but they did a really good job trying to make all the key elements flow, whether or not it's realistic to what would happen in a, with a child in that kind of scenario. I think we, we know there's a bit of a stretch there, they actually, the, the director does a pretty good job of trying to uh, tie up all plot holes within the frame of the movie. And I, I'm really looking forward to discussing this one with everybody today. It's it may be not like some of the other ones my co-hosts have picked in the past, but I, I do think there's a lot of fun things to go through here. Tom, what are your thoughts? What I find interesting about this movie, uh, two things. First of all, the, the genre of the film is incredibly interesting. Um, it's it's a coming of age movie that 
has a person in it who's too young to come of age. He's eight years old. He, you know, he's too young to, to develop in the way we think of somebody coming to age. Um, and in the middle of the movie, there's a farce. There's like a 10 to 15 minute farce that pops up in the middle of the movie. And the, the thing you go to the movie for, the kind of the, the conflict between Kevin and the wet bandits. Um, I, I was looking at the clock while watching this. Uh, the setup where he's left home alone takes place in about 17 minutes. It gets to it pretty quickly. But the, the stuff with the wet bandits where they're trying to break in and he's stopping them, is it starts about like 70 to 75 minutes in and wraps up about 90 minutes into this hour and 45 minute movie. And so most of the movie is this sort of sentimental coming of age, but too young to come of age film surrounding a farce right in the middle of it. The second point I, I found interesting was actually the, the reception history of this film looking at the, the critics at that time who were writing about this, then I put a ton of block quotes from them in the show notes page because I thought their responses were uh, oftentimes bizarre. Um, but the, the responses were deep, deep concern with the depictions of, of violence on screen. Um, uh, and, and at one point, there's, there's a critic from, I think, the, the Austin Chronicle, who in 1990 is writing that the film, quote, overflows with primitive, disastrously unfunny sight gags and neo-hateful familial humor, which made me think, what is neo-hateful? What does that term mean? <laughs> and it, and you could see, like, with the tomato meter, if anybody knows that, it's, you know, the, the, um, the way of measuring how much critics liked it compared to how many use how much users liked it or the metacritic meter does the same thing and what you see is critics kind of fall in the 60 to 65 percent range and viewers casual viewers are upwards of 80 percent and it seems like critics at that time were really really worried that um that of the violence depicted on screen apparently having never seen a looney tunes cartoon and Th that like fascinated me and it made me like the movie more like i wanted to defend the movie against against these neo hateful critics um but how about you kj what'd you think i really like the movie i think it's a lot of fun um i remember when it first came out i was turning eight that christmas so i think for all of us it's it's the perfect age for us to have grown right up on the money the <laughs> yeah, no exactly um <laughs> And uh, the, the one thing I, I do remember were the ads for this movie back in 91 or one or 1990 when this came out. Um, they were shots of people coming out of the theater and they would say, how many times did you watch the movie? And the first few people were like, I've seen this movie three times. I've seen this movie five times. I've seen this movie 17 times. And I don't even know if it had been out for two weeks. So, you know, according to that guy, he was going multiple times a day to watch Home Alone, but the hype for this movie when it came out was was big, right? I mean, this was the the Pizza Hut era. This was this was huge. You couldn't get away from this movie. Um, but I think it still holds up. I I really enjoyed this rewatch. How about you, Christine? I love the movie, and as Nick said earlier, we watch it annually, and it just gives me chills every time I hear that opening jingle. And it just takes you back to, you know, the good old days when you were young and just things were a lot simpler back then, right? And it was very enjoyable 
through and through. I kind of disagree with Nick. I think that this should be a critically acclaimed film, um, but it was very, very fun. And, you know, it just, you know, it's a, it sets the tone for Christmas and the season and I could watch it over and over again. That and Elf, I think, would be my two top favorites. <laughs> I think that might be a hint for a future holiday episode right there. <laughs> Now, Christine, I, I think I may actually know the answer to this one, but for everyone else out there, what, what do you think is the perfect snack to enjoy, whether eat or imbibe, while watching Home Alone? It has to be hot chocolate with marshmallows that coat the entire top of the cup. And that's how you know you're doing it right. But it's nice and it keeps you warm. It makes you feel a little more cozy and homey and it just sets the mood for the entire movie. So I think that's what I would go with. Okay, that's exactly what I thought. And I have a, a biased opinion here that is a wonderful snack to enjoy while watching this movie. It's time for Movie Quiz. We're going to start off uh, right away in round one. Each question in this round will be worth one point unless I state otherwise for some crazy reason. I don't know if I'm going to do that, but we'll see. And as our illustrious guest, I'm going to let you start off uh, picking the category, Christine. The three categories in this round include, look what you did, you little jerk. We slept in. And why the heck are you dressed like a chicken? We slept in. Do you mean, we slept in? We slept in! It's time for question one. What are the two reasons why the McAllister family didn't notice that Kevin was missing at the boarding gate in the airport? You need to get both of the reasons in order to get the point. I think I'm locked in. Two reasons, huh? Two yeah, reasons. I'm struggling with the second. All right, locked in confident locked in locked in okay <laughs> question mark and then emphatic <laughs> okay so <laughs> i am going to start with tom because he answered first so i'll switch it up so the first reason is that the, the young boy from across the street wanders over to talk to the the drivers and while he's going through the McAllister's stuff the oldest girl who is responsible for for counting all the children counts him as kevin giving them the the number 11 uh which is the the amount of people the, the amount of people they need to go to the airport so that's reason number one why they don't notice him reason number two is that um kevin is sent to sleep alone he has to sleep upstairs and because he uh he pulled some shenanigans or got in trouble in the kitchen um, and was sent up to bed and he doesn't want to sleep with his cousin played by his brother played by macaulay culkin's brother because said cousin wets the bed and so because he is uh up there in the attic all by himself while the family is rushing to get to the airport because the the phone the the electricity has been cut and the alarm clock doesn't go off um nobody notices him uh, yeah, I too had Attic Sleeping and The Neighborhood Kid. Christine. I had The Neighborhood Kid and they threw away his passport when the milk spilled. Okay, 
I'm actually in an unbiased way. The points go to Christine. It actually they they threw away his ticket, not the passport. But that oh. is actually a bit of a plot <laughs> that we can talk about. But the, the reasons that not that so much he was in the attic, they, they just miscounted because of the neighbor. That's why they didn't check to see if he was they knew he was in the attic. They just didn't think they had to go check on him in the kitchen scene when there's a scuffle between Kevin and his brother Buzz. They knock over the milk onto the counter. And while their father is wiping it all up, they, he, they see one of the airline tickets goes in the garbage. And the camera actually pauses for an extra second or two on that. It is something you can miss if you're not paying attention. But with my eagle eyes and all the viewings I've seen, it's actually a critical um, moment that actually ties in why when they get to the gate, they're not questioning it. They don't have an extra ticket for the when they board. So the reason I, I brought up this question is I wanted to kind of go over the whole family dynamic, the insanity that is the McAllister plus relatives. What did you all think about right from the beginning where we enter into chaos? You know, what do you think about how the movie started in that whole dynamic? Yeah, I, I mean, let's so we're going to just table the conversation about having milk with pizza that that disgusting combo um but it's nutritious though fair game fair everything's fair game is it is it is it doctor uh but (laughs) the the, oh god i i mean so the the opening is the the opening is very different from the rest of the movie in the sense that it gets to the point very, very quickly. I mean, within 15 minutes, we, we've almost, almost within 15 minutes, we've got the setup. Um, and the also, it's also orchestrated in a very nice way so that you're introduced to the characters you need to know, with the exception of Daniel Stern's character, but you, you get like a representative of the Wet Bandits and Joe Pesci's character. And you also have this kind of um, musical orchestration because you have the the mess of people running from room to room the kind of the chaos of it um the the while still retaining a focus enough of a focus on kevin to identify him as the main character so that when the movie moves past that it's able to kind of breathe and allow you time to spend just with kevin or just with his mother who become the two focal points, and then later also with the Wet Bandits. Um, so the, the movie has this kind of orchestration. What's, what's interesting about it is, d- despite how expeditious it is getting to the setup, the comic setup, the farcical elements don't happen till, I, and I made this point before, don't happen till an hour later. So most of the movie from that setup to the, the payoff for the setup is, is kind of waiting, waiting it out. So, Tom, I know you were quite concerned with the milk consumption here. I can actually explain why they weave that into the plot. There's a a quote from Kate McAllister, the mother, that says, I hope you're all drinking milk. I want to get rid of it. So that's why they're drinking milk with pizza. Uh, (laughs) Nobody was drinking it. She just had it out to entice. Uh And that's why so much of it later in the movie, he ends up buying milk, which is seen as as evidence of his development. This movie has a milk thing going on, but I'm not entirely (laughs) in the early 90s. To be fair, milk was a staple in my house growing up. And like it was important to make you healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Milk is disgusting in my book, but I love it with hot chocolate. (laughs) 
The other thing I, I really liked about the opening was the first thing you do is you see a shot of the outside of the house, but you hear the chaos inside. And I thought that was a great way to introduce the family was just the sounds of everybody talking and trying to figure out what they need to go. Um, I really liked how it started, not visually, just audio. And then you got to see everything that was happening inside. Even to add on that, the so-called policeman, he's there for a while, just standing there in the foyer. And then the pizza guy comes too, and he's standing there for a while. And it's, it's actually kind no of crazy that they it. don't know these strangers are in their house. You want to get away from that situation. It allows you sympathy with Kevin, right? The whole thing is about building sympathy with him, seeing his perspective, which is good because... There's the the danger of him coming off as a little, I was going to say a little less word, but like a little creep, um, a little annoyance. Uh, and the the movie is careful both in its casting and it and in its treatment in that opening sequence not to do that. That's true, but I was surprised how biting some of his lines were. Why don't you get off the phone and make me? That that's those are pretty strong words for an eight year old yeah. to say to his mom. While I mean, so I I, I always forget how. Some of his his rudeness is pretty rude in the beginning. It's not enough to make you not like him, but I, I was surprised at how how sharp some of his lines were. His dialogue, even though he's a second grader, he talks like an adult in many scenes. Yeah, I, I think also feeding the they, the way that the camera sped up the people while during certain scenes that sort of added to the chaos also, and then you know it just sort of made it a little bit more entertaining too. So that's true that that's true that it was yeah. a faster pace for certain ones of those scenes although i know there's it's not directly related there's a fast paced scene that i think you thoroughly enjoy too uh uh yes i do and he's running around the house and he's <laughs> screaming with his arms <laughs> up and down the stairs it was a lot of fun that's that's a that's a great part too Christine had big plans of that being her intro to the podcast, but then I explained to her it was an audio-only format, so it might not translate. Yeah, I was very disappointed. <laughs> okay, we're going to jump into question two. And KJ, I'm going to let you pick between look what you did, you little jerk, and why the heck you dressed like a chicken? I'll go, why the heck you dressed like a chicken? It's time for question two. As the wet bandits navigate Kevin's booby-trapped home, what are the total number of hazards that would likely have been fatal to either Harry or Marv? And they, they have to have been possibly fatal. Yes, that's the key to this question. And you'll be happy to know this isn't just what does Nick think. I actually have a resource that was done by a doctor who analyzed the scenes, and I'll go over that in a second. And the doctor was not my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fatal or potentially fatal? All signs point to it's a strong possibility that if it occurred in real life, it would be fatal. I have one that's a wobbly, okay. but I'm going to go with it. I'm, I'm going to lock in. Um, I, I, can, I don't know the medical reality of some of these. Um, I, I know uh, there's a few that could kill me that I'm not going to put down, but I'll, I'll go, I'm going to lock in. I, I can't help but think of Home Alone 2, where they really turn up the dial. Like the first thing that Kevin does to them in 2, yeah, he throws bricks at them from the yeah. roof. 
it, it's really rough. To watch. <laughs> Doesn't he um, hunt them down also in Home Alone too? It, it's a it. Yeah. Well, he brings they, them back. He he to his lair. <laughs> yikes! Um, but locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, I'm going to start in the reverse. Christine, start us up. How many potential deaths? I got six. Uh, KJ, I like dead, right? Yes, all signs point to fatality. Dead. I I can only I had one. Okay, KJ's locked in with one. And I, I'm locked in with four. Okay. The points go to Tom. Yes. With four. I had a wobble. So there was a, a pretty interesting video by Screen Junkies who enlisted a Dr. Adam Friedlander. And he analyzed, in general, they analyze a bunch of action movies, but this specific one, they analyze a comedy for the amount of death. Not typical to analyze a comedy for the amount of potential death. And they literally went through each scene and said what the possible injuries would have been from those scenes. And there were four that they said would be potentially fatal. And the specific ones that they mentioned that would be fatal, there's a scene where Harry is really frustrated about what's going on here. And he goes to run up to the front door and he has a really bad fall down the slippery stairs. I mean, he flips backwards and they say that he could slip down the stairs. And most likely based on that, he would have broke his neck based on how he flipped over and landed. The other one where it was uh, said that he was most likely would be killed is Marv when he takes the iron to the face when it comes down the chute. Yeah, I had that Um, one. That was a pretty deadly one. In fact, they said, and they would literally say what like the symptoms were, facial and cervical spine fractures (laughs) uh, probably would have uh, ensued from that. And the next one was, the next two are related. Marv with the snow shovel to the back of the head in the end, and Harry with the snow shovel to the front of the head. Both of these would have uh, skull fractures with epidural uh, hematoma, and that most likely would have killed them. So of all the ones, they did go into the burns, the thir- second and third degree burns, from when he come, which I always thought was a really brutal one when he goes in the door and he literally, his head catches on fire. Um, <laughs> let's talk about a little bit about, uh, before I spit them all out there, some of the things that they endured chasing down this eight-year-old through his funhouse. <laughs> I think the nail, stepping oh. on the nail in the basement, you could feel it. Like when you watch that, scene you feel it on your foot so that was huge and this poor guy got his feet beat up the same one that he walked through the window and stomped on those ornaments (laughs) and that is that that was awful um but yeah Apparently in that scene where he went through the window, no, no, it wasn't the scene he went through the window. I think it was the scene where he gets shot in the forehead through with the pellet gun. They didn't cut it, but he actually uses the S word, but you can't really, cause it sounds like a yell. So I, I, so I was looking at it. They said, if you pinpoint a very specific thing, you'll hear him say it. But I guess it wasn't clear enough that they left it in the movie. Yeah, apparently there's a, a point of frustration for Joe Pesci that he couldn't curse. 
That was the one <laughs> that let in. So he had to, that would be very difficult. Yeah, he had to do like comic book cursing. I, 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 I guess along that though, like which were our like your favorite of the different hazards? I I mean I I actually like the early ones. Not not so much the hazards, but the distractions. Like when he has the party, um rocking around the Christmas tree party yeah. with Michael Jordan <laughs> on the train. Uh I you know, I, I like I like that a lot. And I like the like the Looney Tunes stuff, the uh the cans and the trip fire and, and the zip line where they then smack into the wall and, and fall over. Um I, I think I think any kind of flipping and, and kind of Tweety bird flying around your head would would be entertaining. I mean, I was watching before coming on on, on YouTube, watching old uh, Three Stooges movies, and they're they're very much done in this this style of somebody getting bopped and with something that would kill you, but it's just it's sort of my you know, and they recover and 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 move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I it's it's a form of farce that is it's very old i mean like the romans had something like this it wasn't quite the same kind of physical thing that we see in 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 american movies and american television but there's still this kind of like old tradition of um this like clownish person who gets beat up by you know a master or something uh and you know here it's it's the farces like the the dummy either uh, a stooge or somebody like this who you know is taking blow after blow with a kind of a with a rubber spine. I still want to hear everyone else's favorite, but there's another thing that's not necessarily a hazard that I always found really funny with this movie. It's the way he taunts them. So there's the one scene, oh no, I'm really scared. And they're like saying, we're going to get you. And he's like, okay, come and get me. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite was when he, when Joe Pesci was laying on the ground because he tripped over the cord that Kevin placed on the, like, I guess in the hallway and he fell on his back and the spider landed on his chest and Marv took the crowbar and smacked him in the chest with the crowbar, which I would think would be pretty fatal. So that was on my list of fatal things. So I'm very surprised that that was not on that list, but anyway, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, it had some serious, they actually in that one, I think it had to do with ribs and everything else, but I, I don't think it was a fatal shot. If he got maybe a crowbar to the head, it seemed like most of the, actually most of the ones that came up on the fatal report were, yeah, actually every single one of them was a hit to the head. That seemed to, either a broken neck or a hit to the head. I think they thought you could kind of get over some other fractures, but I'm sure there would be some damage. I, I don't know which is my favorite, but um, Christine, you mentioned the nail and you can definitely feel that. And the other foot injury is when he comes in the window and there's the ornaments. Um, he's kind of stepping on them, but uh-huh. the sound of those ornaments popping under his foot. And then they do one more just to make you shiver as he takes that final step away. That was brutal. But what I really liked was um, before all the the farce, you see Kevin planning. And I think because of that scene, you're more excited to see the trap sprung. If we didn't see him setting up the traps, I don't think it would be that. It would be more like a Looney Tunes character where they're just pulling hammers from their back. 
I think because we saw the traps laid and then saw them sprung is why we really enjoy it. We want to be an eight-year-old defending our house with micro machines. That's, that's really fun. Glad you brought that up because there's a specific part of that sequence that really brings me back into that like eight-year-old mindset. Yeah. And that's when he rolls out the plants. Like, and you actually see that, like, it's not a very long scene, but it made me think when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, I'm going to draw out my dream mansion. And there was a bowling alley and an arcade in there. And, and, and this was like kind of that thing. Okay, here's my house. And this is how I can come up with the plan to defend it. So that, that part of that sequence drew me in because I used to draw crazy things like that. It's a perfect, it's a perfectly crafted plan when you know it's drawn in crayon. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's the childhood fantasy, kind of, and this is this is this is an interesting thing. The kind of the the fantasy elements of it, how much is there, how much is kind of uh, touching on on realism. The uh, you know what you were KJ was talking to me about this offline was the, you know this idea that there's this this like little bit of fantasy they they dip into and dip out of. I wonder if like the farce is what permits that. Well, I'm going to conclude round one after this last question. The remaining category is, look what you did, you little jerk. It's time for question three. What are the names of the children that live at 671 Lincoln Boulevard? We're going to go round the room on this one, starting with Christine. Buzz. Yes, Buzz is the oldest in the family and his girlfriend, Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> KJ. Uh, Kevin. Kevin is one of the children. Tom. Catherine. Catherine is not on the list. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember these people. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to keep it going. Uh, Christine. Megan. Megan is the eldest daughter, the brunette, if that helps people um kj back to you i think there's there's i think there's three more girls but i'm too as the french say le compétent to uh to know their names so i think I'm i, I out. think there's six girls six girls no the family photo only had six KJ, I believe five and six there's 11 wow. children well, yeah. but they I don't believe... all live there there's uh like the oh i think they're the cousins the... Yeah. KJ, it was le incompetent. Oh, le incompetent. <laughs> I can, I'm incompetent in my French too. <laughs> Does she have a name? <laughs> I, yes, but I don't know it. I think I'm out. Oh, no. Um, so, Christine, you will receive the point for this one, but do you know any of the other names? Is it Linny? There is a Linny. She is the le incompetent to Kevin. And to really show your skills, there is one name remaining. Martha? Jane? <laughs> nope. Is it Sarah? Peter? Nope. Selena? Nope. The redheaded brother. Denise? I'll give you that clue. <laughs> Pete. I thought that was Pete, yeah. Pete and Pete. Jeff. Jeff, oh. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> no, it's not Pete and Pete. It's not Pete and Pete. Then so I, the I, reason I, I brought up this question is there's a lot of people and you really have to pay attention to like who actually is a part of his family. And there's one sequence where his family has, he made his family disappear and he's going back and he's thinking of all the mean comments. 
the first five children that say mean comments to him were actually the ones that were his siblings. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, you know, look what you did, your little jerk with the uncle and the parents came in as well. But those five are actually the siblings. The one who miscounted, uh, that was actually the daughter of the people they were visiting in Paris. Uh, she says, because when they're going through that opening sequence, like, where's your family? And she's like, oh, in Paris with the, with uh, Joe Pesci as the cop. So I just thought this was a fun one to bring up. Uh, one of the things I did want to say here too, was they're actually, the house that this was filmed at was a 671 Lincoln Avenue. And that was in, oh gosh, what was it called? Winnetka? Winnetka? Yeah. Yeah, Winnetka. Oh gosh, that shows you I'm not from uh, Illinois. Yeah. Is it Winnetka? I think it's Winnetka. Winnetka? It's W-I-N-N-I-T-K-A. Which I think is a suburb of uh, Illinois, uh, Chicago. Yeah, probably. it's the same house, I think, from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, isn't it? Oh. I don't know if that's true. I, I thought it was, that they end up at the end. I don't know if that's true. because I'm not sure about that, actually. But what I will say is what I found interesting when I was researching this, they did a lot of the filming around the Chicago area. So they filmed in that actual house. So a lot of times we see, oh, that was the, the house, the Brady Bunch house, et cetera, like that. And it's recorded in a studio. Most of the main entryway area, the foyer and, and some of the rooms, that was actually filmed directly in the house. Um, I just thought it was something interesting, you know, how they did that. So what did you guys I thought that house was very lucky? Yes. Yeah. I think it looks like it's the same house, <laughs> but they also, yeah, they like filmed in the local gym. I think they built some of the set there, which was where Ferris Bueller was filmed. I mean, it, it's, um, it's typical. Oh God. What's his name? John Hughes type fair, right? It's very much invested in the kind of Chicago suburban life, uh, that type of thing. So even their sets were like local, locally built. So just so you know, the, the house actually, they are both colonials, but it actually is a different house because I'm, I'm, looking, different at, house? I'm huh. looking at the I'm looking at the the picture of the house. They're, they're different. They they both are colonials, but they're they're a different house, mm -hmm. like the shape on the sides. Actually, the one in Home Alone is looks much larger. Yeah. It has two stories off of the sides versus the other one has like almost like a sunroom area. Oh, very, yeah. This is a, oh, very, okay. very critical to this mm -hmm. uh, podcast here, you know, architecture. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I just what did you guys think of the extended family influences on this movie? The the crazy uncle and, and the cousin who actually was Macaulay Culkin's brother, Kieran Culkin, um, who, of course, Fuller would wet the bed if he drank anything. What did you think about all the other ancillary characters in the family? Perfect amount. They were. It was a perfect amount of extra family to add to the chaos without taking the spotlight away from those who needed it. Um, it felt like a family was visiting, right? They're all kind of angry at each other, but they're family, so they're not really angry at each other. I, I, I thought it worked great, especially that kitchen scene where the milk spills and everyone's like, oh, blah, blah. amazing kitchen too, by the way. I didn't like the tile countertops, though. I don't know. If you had a kitchen like that, I would invite people over every day. I don't, whoever they were, come on over. Come in my kitchen. I'll make you some breakfast. There's multiple tables to sit at. This is an awesome kitchen. I just kept thinking about how difficult it would be to clean the grout on that tile. <laughs> and when that milk spilled. Oh, oh man. Yeah. My heart had palpitations. <laughs> Comedy or horror? 
<laughs> oh, I was I was gonna say like they're they're also faceless enough to make that question incredibly difficult. Yeah. <laughs> the the only reason I remembered even that Kieran McCulkin was in it was he looks so much like his brother. Um, he's actually a pretty adorable little kid. But outside of that, and the uh, and the redheaded brother who is still acting. I see him in things. The the brother with the is he a brother or cousin? No, no, Buzz, Buzz is the older brother. But he's but that's okay. So Buzz yeah, is he, the one he looks about. very different. Buzz is he, the one he still who's acts like, in things, but he does not look the same. He's a little he looks little, very different. Yeah. yeah. But Buzz is the only one that's kind of distinct of that group, which considering he's the source of the tarantula, makes sense. Um but other than that, they're you know it's it's like the Furies, right? It's just a bunch of uh, like screaming demons who you know condemn him to the attic. Uh, it, you know, that that seems to be what their fun function is, and it's it's a lot of fun. Consequently, well, I personally thought that the cousins were a little bit mean to Kevin as cousins. Like I feel like the siblings, you know, I get that. You know, they're allowed to be mean. They're allowed to be as harsh as they were, but the cousins, mm, I think they overstepped their bounds a little. Well, look at their father. <laughs> I mean, the uncle. I know. Like, that's where the category title comes from. Not a nice guy. He wouldn't even let him watch the movie, and it wasn't even rated R. He was just being a jerk. Yeah, they. he's also depicted as incredibly cheap. The, whole, the, the only characteristic we have of him is that he's very, very cheap and, and a bit of a thief it's real crystal tom you got to take this uh the salt and pepper shakers in first class yeah he steals the crystal tops or the crystal glasses that he they, gets in they first were salt class. Is and that pepper right? shakers oh okay yep. salt and pepper shakers yeah but we see him you know trying to trying to steal these things uh refusing to pay for the pizza you know we also see him there. fill up that champagne in first class to the top <laughs> yeah yeah so we get he's it's like it's a typical child's look at something it's the reduction of somebody to one characteristic uh but when you when you're dealing with you know a chorus as opposed to people you, you kind of need that okay well we're here at the end of round one christine has the lead at two points tom has one point and kj's still with us today we'll be right back after this quick commercial break this episode is brought to you by the word farce farce Noun, a comic dramatic work using buffoonery and horseplay and typically including crude characterization and ludicrously improbable situations. We here at Talking Pictures Trivia are always advocates of drinking responsibly. However, for those of age, if you are genuinely curious about the farce count thus far, it's eight. Enjoy the rest of the show. And we're back for round two. In this round, each question will be worth two points unless otherwise stated. The categories for round two include, eh, it's my brother's house. He'll take care of it. Guys, I'm eating junk and watching rubbish. You better come out and stop me. And no offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? Christine, I'm going to let you pick this category. Okay. I'm going to go with, guys, I'm eating junk and watching rubbish. You better come out and stop me. It's time for question four. All of the events and hijinks in Home Alone transpired due to Kevin McCallish's affinity for one particular item. What is it? One item that caused all the chaos in his life. Think back ah. to the beginning of the movie. 
I, I have an answer. I'll lock in with an answer, but I, I you know, I'm going to lock in that answer, but I, I'm not. There's a few ways I can interpret the question. And so I'll lock in with this one interpretation. That's exactly why I asked the question in the manner I asked it. Is it a physical item or can it be? Or it is it, a, it is a physical item and I will let Tom relock in if that changes his it's not no, no, I, it's not theoretical it is something that can be held it's a, the search for god <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm locked in yeah uh, locked in kj what is it it maybe i'm misunderstanding the question because it, it sounds like I should know the answer, but I'm going to go the movie Angels with Filthy Souls. Okay. Would you like to elaborate? Sure. Um, the movie starts uh, with Kevin coming into his mom's room, complaining that Uncle Frank won't let him watch the movie. I'm assuming it's Angels with Filthy Souls. In your um, head, Canon? No. Well, that's, <laughs> it's one of the, it's one of the it's we only see two movies within the movie um, and it's the most prominent and it seems like it wouldn't be rated R, but uncle Frank wouldn't let him watch it. So it kind of checks all those boxes um, and that kind of irritates him and then sets him on the path. And, you know, once you're, once you're down a path like that, it's tough to, um, you know, get back to being regulated again. Um, so that movie starts there and then he uses it as a tool throughout um, and, you know, in that triumphant scene where he's eating the marshmallow, the, the mountain of marshmallows, that's what he's looking for. Angels with filthy souls. Okay. Tom, what are your thoughts? I'm going to say the thing that starts all the chaos in a sort of cue ball hits the other ball, which hits the other ball kind of way, is pizza without toppings. Plain cheese pizza, which causes him to get in a fight with his brother, which causes the milk to spill, which ruins the ticket, which sends him upstairs, which allows them to, in part, not know where, he, not recognize that, he, that he's not with them, um, which puts him in the line of fire for the wet bandits. Okay, and Christine, what's your answer? I was gonna say the spilled milk and the argument that ensued with Buzz and Kevin, which then similar to Tom, uh, which then led Kevin to, you know, get sent to the the attic and them to forget about him the next day. In your answer, what is the item? Milk. That he has an he has an affinity for milk. It all comes down to milk. Don't you get it? <laughs> It's love. <laughs> it's, the, it's the physical act of love. I'm going to defend Christine a little bit here. By the end of the movie, it's the milk that proves that he's grown up. They're all impressed ah. that he shopped for the milk. That's that's the item. Okay. But also the movie. The movie. He starts off when he first sees it, he's too scared. And then later, not only is he fine with watching it, it's, it's a tool, like you say. Um, also with the furnace. A lot of this movie is him getting over fear. And the okay. pizza. No, I'm just... KJ, that was a great analysis. Tom, you'll get the points. <laughs> so, and the reason it was love, wasn't it? Christine, you were so close, but he, Kevin didn't have an affinity for milk. It wasn't the one thing he wanted in life was I need milk. Cheese pizza. He wanted a cheese pizza. 
Buzz knew he wanted a cheese pizza. Buzz ate the cheese pizza. And the only way he could get it back is if Buzz barfed it back up. That is what starts the whole fight. And what is one of his most glorious things that happens when he's alone? He gets to order and have his own cheese pizza. But going back to that scene, you were very close, Christine. You just didn't mention the actual item that he craved, that he wanted. The cheese pizza is definitely, in some crazy way, a catalyst for Kevin being left alone. If that scene didn't happen, his ticket wouldn't have been discarded. All of those different events, they would have known that Kevin was not with them. I just thought that was pretty interesting theory that I've read. And I actually do believe in it. Now, I know not Tom's the only one who got the points here, but I'd love to hear if people think there's support for that or even refute it as that is not the key catalyst. There's a few things that have to come together, right? It, it's sort of a perfect storm that gets him tr- get left left alone. I mean, that kid has to wander over there. The the ticket has to get thrown out. Um, they have to the the tree has to fall in the power lines so that they don't wake up in the morning, which causes uh, which causes a rush. It's sort of depicted as a perfect storm type scenario. But even with all those other elements they still would have had checks and balances on Kevin. The only thing that made it so that he definitely wasn't, even when they get onto the plane, if they had the ticket and they realized, oh, Kevin's not with us, they would have known at that point. The thing that prevents them from knowing, even while they're in the air, that Kevin was left behind is the fact that the fight was started over the cheese pizza, which everyone knew, especially Buzz, that Kevin enjoyed. AJ, fight it, fight it, fight it, fight it, fight it. No, I got nothing to fight. I sure. <laughs> I agree with Tom, but <laughs> I, I, I think yeah. In terms of what he wants through the whole movie, I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I, I just thought it was funny that you could boil this down to a cheese pizza. <laughs> that, that's really why yeah. I brought this up. Mm. <laughs> because it's, it's, it seems to be like what he wants is independence. And then an adventure that turns to he wants he doesn't want independence. You know, he wants to be enmeshed back in his family again. But, you know, a lot of the movie is about establishing independence. And so it seems like if, if you're going to say he has a, you know, to use it, a, a super objective, something that this character wants overall, it's kind of hard to say because at a certain point that goes from I want independence and, and to be my own person outside of this. I, this Greek chorus of nonsense that's surrounding him um, to the end where he just wants, you know, he wants that group of people back again. I think he proved to himself that he can be independent, but he thought that being independent was the objective. Whereas he real, and, and this is just my thoughts that you can still have that, but crave that familial bond. Yeah. It's, it's independence to do something right. It's independence, it, he discovers, isn't a goal on its own. It's it's something you use to do things. And if there's nobody in your life, there, there's nothing to be done. There's nothing to do. Um, and re- acquiring those tools requires really important development. And what we learn about him at the beginning is nobody thinks he's capable of doing anything. He can't even tie his shoes. He's, he's considered, he can't do anything on his own. He's considered this sort of... Uh, 
the, the most um, most dependent of the the members of the McAllister household. They start and, that a lot with the packing of the bags. Yeah, he doesn't. He do, exactly. He doesn't know how to pack his. That's exactly the example I was searching for, but forgetting. He doesn't know how to pack his own suitcase. Um, and you know, they kind of make his sister or cousin, one of the random people who seem to be occupying this house, makes a big <laughs> deal about that. And what we find by the end is he's, um, you know, he's able to impress everyone with his capacity. What was your favorite example of his independence? It, it, it probably has to be the kind of the, the child becoming father of the man scene in the church. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a sappy scene, but upon rewatching this, this movie, I, I sort of liked it where he's, what the scene is, he's, he goes to, to church and um, they are, it's not a mass, but they're, they're having a choir practice. And the old man is who, you know, the, the old man, the neighbor is there and he's old able man to Marley, give, Tom, old man. Marley. Yeah. Old man, Marley. Okay. Creepy um, old man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jacob Marley. Um, and he, old man, Marley uh, gives him advice, but he really is able to give old man Marley advice. And that, that was probably, um, you know, a, a moment of like adultness that may be unrealistic, but is also up, you know, that, that is a little heartwarming. I agree with Tom. It was very touching. That scene always makes me cry every time I watch it because um, you're right. She, he was sort of like the kid and he was giving advice from his perspective as a child um, and sort of using that as an analogy for, you know, what's going on in this older man's life um, with his son and the conflict that um, has been going on between the two of them for so many years. So um, it, was, uh, it was refreshing to see a young child um, be as mature as he was and grow as much as he did. So, And you realize it's also a movie about loneliness too. Yeah. That, you know, a lot of, so much of this movie isn't, so much of what's thought about when you think about this movie is the farce, is the, the wet bandits who are, you know, knocked about. Um, but most of this movie is neither him with his family or him dealing with the wet bandits. Most of the movie is him dealing with being on his own. Uh, and I think that in that scene, you no longer have um, survival or puzzle solving. What you have is actual, like, an, an experience of loneliness um, that he isn't fully able to grasp because he's eight years old. Eight years old, don't, don't, they don't have that kind of uh, emotional intelligence. But he's able to sort of reflectively understand in some way. I, too, really like that scene. But do you think he could have given the same advice if he didn't have the experience he had? Was that a result of his independence? Or is that just, what do you mean you don't talk to your kids? Talk to your kids. Like, is, is that something any kid would have said, let alone one that went through the, at that point, what is it, a day and a half experience that Kevin McAllister went through? I feel like it, it was more of like Kevin McAllister's, you know, personality that that's what he would have said regardless. That's, that's my, my feeling um, because he's, I think that's his personality. Um, I, yeah, some things may have happened up until that, at that point that may have shaped his, you know, conversation with the, um, the neighbor, but I think that it was just his personality. I would have, I think that it would have happened regardless. I, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to push back a little bit just because how it's framed and even how uh, Kevin, um, Kevin builds an analogy off the furnace, off the the furnace in the basement, the furnace, right? Or 
whatever. I don't own a house. It was. Uh, it was. Yeah, a furnace. Um, the old man is a source of fear. He's thought of as a serial killer. People, there's a rumor he's a serial killer, and so Kevin's uh, relationship to him is is one of fear. And when the old man sits down with him, he's able to kind of get over his fear. When he describes uh, talking to the the children, talking to his son again, and the old man says, "Well, what if he won't talk to me? I'm scared." Kevin goes to his experience with the furnace and saying, "I thought this furnace was scary, and then I went down there." And it's just a furnace. It's nothing. Um, so he's actually drawing from the, the lived experience of those few hours, that, that day or two, in order to advise this person who himself was a source of fear begun before the, the new Kevin came about. So I think the, the conversation is a consequence of his independence and needing to grow. We may have a category uh, specifically off of that. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I think any Kevin McAllister could have given the advice of just talk to your son, but his reasoning is a much more mature reason than just, you know, any any kid at that age would have said, well, I don't understand what the big deal is. So, yeah, it, I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it, it's drawn from that mm -hmm. specific experience. Yeah. I think he may have had a little more color around it, but to Christine's point, I think he would have said it, but maybe not in so many words. I still feel like I, I, I do lean in that direction. Like this is just this kid. He's always going to have some answer. I think he's inherently mature for his age. I just think that it hasn't really come out yet until he's experienced what he has um, during the whole movie. So. But we do get these marks of maturation. And, and if we don't have that, like if we don't have that scene in the church or seeing him be able to do laundry, right? Because him doing laundry is him is evidence that he's gotten over the furnace. Um, you know, him ordering pizza and using angels with dirty face, dirty souls to <laughs> angels with dirty faces, angels with dirty so, souls. Hold on, hold on, to, hold on. What, what was is it called? Angels, <laughs> angels with dirty souls. I think with filthy, filthy souls. Filthy. Okay. I thought there was a filthy, filthy in there somewhere. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> angels with filthy souls. Him, him I don't not know which movie you're watching, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Him able to uh, that that's that was a late night film. Uh, <laughs> him able to to scare away the the pizza person and also Daniel Stern's character by using that movie and not hiding his eyes from it as he does in his first his first few hours alone. There are all these all these these bits of evidence that he's kind of grown up. What's interesting about it is is he's just too young to you know, quote unquote, come of age, right? If, like, if you think of the, the main kid in Almost Famous, that's a coming of age where he like starts the movie at about 12 or 13 or 14 or something like that. And he ends the movie a few years later, but he's like an adult now, right? He ends that movie as an adult. Kevin can't do that. There's not enough time and, he, and he's too young, but there does still have to be, and there still is this, this process of becoming someone new that's going on. I mean, it's just necessary. Otherwise- it's not, you know, not much of a movie. You know, Tom, not, now that you point that out, I'm thinking I might like the movie a little less because if this whole thing takes place in a day and a half and the house is always immaculate, that means he's always cleaning up after himself. He has to do laundry. They must have done laundry before going on vacation. Why did he need to do laundry within 12 hours, 24 hours of his family leaving? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Every, everything, he's got to go food shopping. That makes a little bit of sense. But 
it 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 feels they like drank all the milk and it spilled it spilled the milk i it feels like he has to do a lot of things that you wouldn't have to do within the first 24 hours of being home alone although maybe as if he's a kid he might not know that you have to wait until a large load of laundry is <laughs> created before how- you could just wash a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> We didn't see how much laundry he was doing. That's actually a fair point. Well, talking about scenes that showed how he was maturing and just his way of being with other people, I really enjoyed, and it it may not be as serious as the scenes that you guys were just discussing in great detail, but when he goes shopping, when he goes to the grocery store and he starts to take out all the different items uh, at the counter and 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 the cashier is just like looking at him and then he takes out the little uh little uh, bag of army toys and he goes for the kids <laughs> like he's like this adult oh wait i have a coupon for that and the whole dialogue and she's asking she's drilling him on questions and she says something to the effect of uh where do you live or going to and he's like i can't tell you and she goes why because you're a stranger. <laughs> it was just like the perfect way to silence an adult and ask no more questions. It was great. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to move on, though. So we continue this. Uh, the points went to Tom for that one. And the remaining categories are, eh, it's my brother's house. He'll take care of it. Or... No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? Tom, which one would you like? It's my brother's house. We'll take care of it. It's time for question five. What do either of the McAllister parents do for a living? I have no idea. (laughs) Locked in. I'm going to lock in too. Do do I have to match the parent to the job or can I just say a job and... (laughs) If a job is on the board of these two, you will get it. Locked in, I guess. KJ, let's do it. Um, I I think uh, a a real estate agent. Okay, Tom. I was gonna say an ad executive. Christine. I'm gonna go with fashion designer slash seamstress. The points go to. Christine, there are a lot of mannequins in this house, and there is a lot of fabrics and different things down in the basement. The mother can be interpreted to have been a fashion designer in the actual, and this is a little outside of the movie, but in the actual literature about Home Alone, the father is referred to as a successful businessman, and the mother is a fashion designer. I think there was enough evidence in the movie to go into the fashion route. With uh, Not everyone just has a load of mannequins floating around their house. Now, the reason I brought up this question had nothing to do with their occupations. I wanted to discuss the McAllister family, specifically the parents in this family relationship. What's going on with these parents? Well, they're apparently rich, right? She must be a successful fashion designer she must have her own house i mean you know that that's a what a three million dollar house they live in and a monogram on a handle at the front door yeah real bougie yes Uh, i think the house in reality in like the early i don't know if it was 2012 sold for 
I think it was 1.6 or 1.7 million, just to give you a realistic number. But yes, yeah, so expensive house in that area. Yeah, I, I mean, you're you're a very good seamstress if if you're if you're doing that. Um, even though maybe the business stuff the guy the, the father does well, compensates. He that. is a successful businessman of sorts. It's actually vague. Yeah, you give no background on him, but the the wife. Yeah, mm-hmm. very specific. I I love how. Um, they sort of flaunt their wealth a little because a the monogram on the the handle. But the second uh, scene was that comes to mind was when they were on the plane, and they were saying, "Don't you feel?" Or I guess the wife was talking to the husband. Don't you feel bad that you're in? You know, first we're in first class and the kids are in coach. And he's like, "Ah, you know, <laughs> no." You They're having the time of their lives. That's what yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who would feel bad that their children aren't flying first class? <laughs> what kind of income do you have that your eleven children aren't flying first class? Only five was theirs, but yeah. I, are you Liberace? What, what kind of person is this? Actually, to be fair, I think they are very, very wealthy because I believe he's he is actually paying for the brother-in-law and everyone too. I believe that I he right. is actually covering all of that. Because the brother-in-law would have never paid for first class. Yeah, mm. they, they do talk about that. Yeah, the the movie, a lot of there's a lot of focus on on the mother. And when we first meet her, she seems kind of cruel and distant. But the movie spends a lot of time building her as a as a sympathetic character. And we spend a lot of time with her as she's she's trying to desperately get back. And she's not given the Steve Martin treatment from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, who is um, frustrated and gradually becomes more and more crass. Consequently, she is a, a, a sympathetic uh, character throughout, and, and kind of the the heartbeat of the film. Um, one of the the problems I have with that is we spend a lot of time um, building <laughs> that sympathy with the mother, waiting for the real the real heart of the movie. You know, the real reason why you bought the ticket, which is the the farce um that happens in the middle um so i you know i i think maybe we could have sped up that process a little more but you know if we're going to talk about this movie as also being a little bit about about loneliness um i think she's one of the characters experiences that along with the the old man um what's his name old man marley marley right mar dickens right charles dickens old man marley and um Kevin and her, they're, they're sort of the the lonely trio in this film. Now, the father, I mean, talking about his contributions to the film, he throws out the plane ticket when he's trying to clean up the, the countertop there. And there's another line in that scene where he explains that he put the passports in the microwave to dry them. Now, granted, in 1990, there wouldn't have been any like chips within it. But they were made of plastic. So I'm pretty sure if you put the uh, passports in the microwave, you probably would have destroyed them. So, uh, yes, he doesn't really contribute much. And again, to Christine's point, eh, throw the kids back in coach. <laughs> Fend for themselves. I also loved how he said when she asked, well, I guess the mother asked him, what did they forget? There's something missing. There's something. And he said, it's the garage. It's the garage door. I left that open. It's not my kid. Kevin! 
yeah, he's he's you know he's there. Uh, he's he's there. It's really she's really the the representative, the public face of the couple. Um, but yeah, this is also the John Hughes thing, right? You have the the um, upper middle class and upper class suburban dynamic. Um, you know, be it be it as adults in planes, trains, and automobiles, or their spawn in his trilogy of films just before that. Um, and then now he seems to be going even younger, trying to, to get at childhood. Does he have another childhood film? I know the director Columbo did. He worked on, um, he wrote um, Goonies and Young Sherlock Holmes in, in the 80s. But is this the first time Hughes has done like a childhood film? Well, Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck also has kids in it, right? I was just going to say Uncle Buck. Actually, there probably would have been no Home Alone if there wasn't Uncle Buck because... That's where they discovered Macaulay Culkin was also in Uncle Buck. And John Candy, which we may talk, maybe we'll rant about it later, was in this film as well, which was funny because it was a very similar character to the traveling salesman that we met in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, except this time he's really into polka. (laughs) Well, he he improved everything. That's he did the he did the movie. He was paid, I think, four fourteen for the film. They had him for one day, and with for which they shot twenty hours of that day. And he was the only person in the film allowed to kind of improv all his lines. So I think that poker scene is probably just him ranting off the top of his head. <laughs> I, I like that scene a lot too, because he's talking about their hits, and he's like, you know what, like poker, poker, poker. I was really good in the Midwest or something. Like that. <laughs> the poker twist, <laughs> <Yeah>. kissing poker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought you recognized me. <laughs> he uh, he actually made me laugh in in those two scenes he's in more i think than anything else in the movie he's good no he was he was a great addition to that movie even though he didn't have a major role but i i did enjoy his contributions to this film so we have one remaining category and that is no offense but aren't you a little old to be afraid it's time for question six what kind of Christmas gifts will get a second grader beat up? Locked in. Locked in, but I think I'm going to be a little off. Uh, locked in. Okay. KJ. Okay. So there are two things that um, can get a second grader beat up, as explained by Kevin McAllister to Marley, I think, in the church. Um and I know it involves ducks. I'm going to put ducks on both of them. Um, but no, I'm not. Here we go. Kevin McAllister gets a sweater from his grandma. That could get him beat up because there was another kid that got pajamas with ducks on it. And that got him beat up. Although I don't know why. Like, how did they know he had the pajamas? But uh, the pajamas and the sweater. KJ, what was on the sweater? If there was a sweater. I was trying to distract you from... <laughs> With because I, I don't think it's a duck. I think the ducks were on the the pajamas. Um, uh, a big K for Kevin. I, I don't remember what was on the sweater. Okay, Tom. I was gonna go with the sweater with a uh, with a bird on it. Was it a duck? Yeah. What kind of bird? Yes. No. 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 I'm trying to. I'm not trying to mislead you. Oh, I, I, I just. <laughs> 
I'm going to say a bird. <laughs> Do I have to specify the type of bird? No. Okay. Was it, what's, what size was the bird? A large bird. <laughs> Christine, what is your answer? I got the knitted sweater from the grandma with a, a large bird on it. That's what I got. Okay. So wait, wait, Tom, did you only have one thing you said? I just want to make I, sure. I, did, I only had to say one. You right? only have to say one. Yeah. Oh. So I had just the sweater with the. So if either. Pronounced of... bird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. KJ will get one point for a valiant effort. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more on that. My analysis to give him that one point, because it's more interesting than just telling the rest of you, you're getting points. So, uh, Tom and Christine will get points. The two things were a sweater with a big bird knitted on it. And the other kid got beat up just because there was a rumor that he had dinosaur pajamas. Okay. Now, KJ, the reason we're going one point here is a duck is a type of bird. (laughs) And it's kind of large. And it could have been large. It wasn't specified in your answer. So stop trying to make it so you get zero points. (laughs) But there was some kind of foul on the uh, knitted sweater. So we will give you one point for that. You are on the board, my friend. Woo! Now, just because we have a close match here, Christine is in the lead with six points. Tom is very close by with five, and KJ has one point. The next question is worth five points. The bonus question, the category, because I'd like to add categories. Keep the change, you filthy animal. It's time for a bonus question. How much did 10 pizzas cost in 1990? Oh, locked in. Locked in. Uh, Can we round? It has to be the exact amount that the 10 pizzas that the McAllisters received, the exact cost. And it has to be the full amount. Locked in. KJ, how you doing? One twenty twenty two. One twenty two twenty five. I had one twenty. Nobody gets the bonus point. The wow. exact amount, Christine, you were so close. It was one twenty two fifty plus tip. Mm. 12250. But Christine, you won either way. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I wanted to destroy him. <laughs> you will be annihilated. <laughs> well, I, to be honest with you, I, I think it's probably fitting that you did win Home Alone because I'm sure the amount of hours you've watched this <laughs> film far surpasses your competitors in this one. But I'd be uh, very disappointed in myself if I lost. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was it was a valiant effort by all. And congratulations once again. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we can uh, have any rants we'd like to make about this film when we get right back. Talking Pictures Trivia Theater presents a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. Read by me, Tom. Chapter 9. The cult's imperatives. Jane and Michael sprinted for the door. Behind them, the white beings from Kepler 442 fell onto the hard ground. 
They surrounded the remains of Mabusa and began eating his body, even as other Keplerites crushed his skull. They jumped out from the room and ran down the hallway. Behind them, Keplerites could be heard walking through the space. They made hissing noises. They made the room feel populated with snakes. They ran, bursting out of the opening in the back of the library wall. Miss Connor, the librarian, shushed them as they charged through the stacks and into the main reading area. Michael, yelling for everyone to run or hide or just get away. Michael and Jane kept going, through the glass library doors, through the brown carpeted hallway, and out the front doors into the semicircle driveway set before the school. Michael's mother was there. Wearing a long black duster and standing before a red convertible sports car, Jill, her long black hair wrapped in a sensible ponytail, didn't bat an eye. Did they come through? Yes. They killed Mabusa. This is why I moved here, Jane, to try and stop you and that crazy old man. Michael, please tell me you still have the lapel pin from earlier. He blushed. The pin, last he saw, had been left in the machine. I'm sorry, Mom, they... they took it. Wait, Jane said. She held out her hand. Inside was the regurgitating phoenix. I grabbed it just before we ran. Excellent, Jill said. Then we have a chance. How can the pin stop the aliens? Michael asked. What do you mean by aliens? Those aren't aliens. Jane and Michael stood there, wide-eyed. But Mabusa said they came from planet Kepler-442, Jane muttered, her normally indifferent gaze breaking into panic. That's what he thought. Often the ancient scrolls of the cult of the screaming lapel pin reference visitors from the heavens. One school, who studies the ancient philosophy, the regurgitators, they believe the secret of each pin is in the sound it makes. Well, they saw the phrase from the heavens and interpreted it to be an extraterrestrial being. The numerology and symbiological research points in the direction of the star system in which modern scientists have found Kepler. However, I come from the school of Phoenix. Those who believe the secret lies not in the type of scream, as all animals may scream in many ways, so saith the scripture of the holy Lapelpin, but in the species of animal. We acknowledge the metaphysical, not merely the material as those regurgitators do. And we know the prophecy of Lionel the Duck clearly indicates that once the holy rectangular prism interacts with the mightiest symbol of our order, the regurgitating phoenix, it shall open a pathway to the world beyond, and the angels of the Dark Lord, the dilapidated penguins, Lucifer to our divine phoenix, will rise up. So those were, Michael said, yes, Michael, those were demons. This has been a Talking Pictures Theatre presentation of a Screaming Lapel Pin production. The Jane of My Youth, a coming-of-age story of young love. This week, Screaming Lapel Pins has on sale The Sadness of the Dying Buffalo.
Pick one up wherever screaming lapel pins are sold. And we're back. It's time for Movie Rant. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm actually interested in what you guys think about this. The, the critical response to this movie, it is fascinating. You know, called reception history, right? Like how this movie was received. Um, and we are 30 years out from the film. So it, it's enough time that there's a significant amount of time has passed. Um, but at the same time, it's close enough that a lot of these, these periodicals that, you know, circulated these reviews are, are still around. Sometimes, in, you know, the same writers are around. And there's this like bizarre sense of panic <laughs> going with all these reviews that um, uh, that the um, that the the violence is too much, um, that the booby traps are described as ugly, um, and that the movie is. Um, here's one review. It said uh, this is from the Washington Post. Post that the the escalation of violence is unnerving. Um, so I, you know, I found that to be incredibly fascinating because I, I thought, you know, I said this at the beginning that the, the genre of the movie, the, the farce genre has existed for, you know, a hundred years before this. And probably, you know, probably there's evidence that it's existed hundreds of years before this. If you look to like comedia type things and, and, you know, Roman comedy and whatnot. But the violence to me just seems sort of part of that trend or part of that tradition or part of that genre. It doesn't seem to be particularly dangerous or unnerving or uh, distracting. I mean, you, you might say that it, it undercuts the sentimentality of the film. However, I think it actually kind of balances it more than undercuts it. But I was wondering what, what you guys thought of that because i did not expect that critical reaction when i looked back for what people were writing about in 1990 what i'll say the thing that kind of blows my mind about this whole uh, dichotomy between the professional critic and the mass audiences it's insane and and to go back to kj's introductory thoughts this film was a big deal this was a very very popular film in fact the bestseller of the year uh it actually i was reading into this it was a guinness world record holder it actually sold it it actually made over 17 million its first weekend it had the number one spot for 12 consecutive weeks and it remained in the top 10 movies until june of 1991 so that gave it the world record for the highest grossing live action comedy ever. And as we said earlier, it was up against Kindergarten Cop, which was, I don't know how popular it was, but it felt like it, it was, was popular, popular to an eight-year-old me. Uh, Edward yeah. Scissorhands, Tim Burton, maybe a little culty, but um, Rocky Five, which was terrible, but it, it probably did well a little bit. A Dances with Wolves and The Godfather Part 3. So it, it wasn't like it was a fluke that it was just in the theater at the right time. There were other movies that people would have probably gone to. Yeah, The Godfather Part 3. Well, so they go once. They go once. But yes, I, it, it blows my mind when you talk about these critics that they thought it was so obscene. Meanwhile, everyone adored it. And even... I don't know if we're just desensitized because we grew up with all this stuff, but I thoroughly enjoy this movie. And I think the reason I'm not bothered and this, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. 
I'm not bothered by the violence is because it's so ridiculous yeah. that it's so removed from reality mm-hmm. that I brush it off. It's not something that I feel. It's not a saw movie. Okay. You change the lighting, you change the atmosphere, you know, then we have something to talk about, but the, the way they play between mortal wounds and fatalities versus this playful humor of this child drawing up plans of how he's going to defend his house. I mean, I think they hit the, the nail on the head. They hit the mark, but the critics were not ready for it, even though audiences were. Yeah, I guess it was just part of that early, late 80s, early 90s sort of, yeah, there's kind of a bit of a hysteria going on with, you know, your, your children are going to be kidnapped and harmed and all this stuff. There's kind of like this danger of media, right? There's this history of fear of media that was really kind of prominent back then. It's when you start, when do you see the, the parent advisory labels on, on records? It's right around this point, right? It's like the, the Tipper Gore laws. Um, but yeah, the, the response to this seems to be part of that. And when I see this, I, I see a Looney Tunes cartoon. This seems to be a live action Looney Tunes cartoon. 1985 actually was the parental yeah. advisory labels were created. Yeah. But I also think too that back, well, back then, I think it was received as okay, excessively violent. But now I feel too, there are a lot of, people who may think like everyone thinks that even like you know somebody who falls on the ground now may maybe you know excessive violence so it could you know be interpreted that way too these days with um you know with the with the the public so Mm -hmm. but I do agree that it was so ridiculous with all of the you know the the booby traps that Kevin set for the the um this i guess the wet bandits that um they were so ridiculously extreme that it could never really happen you know so i think people just needed to understand that so So i have a few questions i'm not looking for answers to um do we think marley paid for the toothbrush when kevin ran out of the store um why didn't marley notice did i give us some time oh sorry yeah yeah uh yeah. No, I, I don't. The kindly old man, like, oh, don't worry, I got it. Here's your eighty-nine cents or whatever. No, just let the kid go to jail. I feel like he would do that <laughs> only after his conversation with Kevin, not before. Okay, okay. Um, like, oh, I reunited with my son. I'll pay for your toothbrush. <laughs> see how that works out, and then you can pay your bail on it. Okay. Um, what else you got? All right. Um, so. Why didn't Marley notice the OK plumbers? I'm assuming Marley's retired. He's hanging out. We see him shoveling quite a bit. I think he would have noticed the plumbers and how eerie and creepy and there he's in there in multiple driveways. Can I ask something? What was very strange to me was how did he know to go to this house that you know, Kevin was being, you know, hung on that hook and the wet bandits were in front of him. I don't know, KJ, if I took the question, but um, how did he know to go to that particular house? Maybe, maybe that answers the question, right? Yeah, he did. That's when he saw them. That's true. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I, I actually thought about this. Christine asked me that even when we were watching it. And I just said, he's his next door neighbor. I assume he saw there was a ruckus going on and maybe saw the kid going across the street because he's always salting those uh, sidewalks <laughs> late at night. But you are right, Christine. They don't explicitly say how he knew, but that's the only thing that we can think of. Things were being 
loud and rowdy. Don't forget, he's got these guys on a rope in his backyard and he's yelling at them. Like, if you're the next door neighbor, you, you probably can hear that. But I'm glad you brought that up because we were just talking about violence. That's the scene, by the way, where this could have turned from a comedy to a horror. They have him up on a hook. They're about to enact revenge. Fortunately, the neighbor comes in. But that story could have had a completely different ending. Like, what are they going to do to this little kid? They're going to kill him? They're going to do it? So that's where I think if the movie went in that direction, maybe the critics have something to say. But fortunately, the neighbor came in and uh, a few good snow shovel hits to the head and, and that was solved. I don't know. I think we've fairly set the tone solid that child murder and dissection is not going to be a part of our, our PG rated family classic here. There's even one scene where he's throwing the paint cans at him and he says something like I was listening to this this time and it always kind of like bothered me. He says a weird insult to the kid. He says he's going to rip off his cojones and and uh, boil them in motor boil oil. them in motor oil. Like that's just a <laughs> weird thing to say to an eight year old. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say to anybody. Was Woody Harrelson in this movie? Was he one of the cops? Or when they when um, I guess uh, Kate finally is able to call the cops from from Paris, doesn't he answer the phone? In drag? Mm, really? I'm pretty sure that was Woody Harrelson. That's that's the so there's two kind of departments right that are next to each other. Yeah, not the yeah. guy with the donut. Mm-hmm. The lady that answers the phone. Okay, based on a random internet search, oh, okay. and the source is Reddit, so this is definitely accurate. In the movie Home Alone, Woody Harrelson makes a cameo as a female police officer. <gasps> oh, really? Wow. I wasn't sure I'm... if it was, but I'm like, oh, I think that's Woody Harrelson. Well, I read it on Reddit, so it must be true. <laughs> it was probably me that posted it just to set this up. Yeah, up. exactly. Huh. Okay. Wow. How would he get involved? That's a good question. Was he big back then? Was he? Did he have, I don't know. He, he was Cheers. He had oh, Cheers. Cheers. That was right, his right. big thing. And then he did... But night, I think it was 1994. He did um, was that's when he had his big th- uh, natural born killers, right? That was the early 90s. I was over at my cousin's house and we were pretty young, and he had set the TV to SAP, which then usually plays the. In this case, it was a Spanish soundtrack through whatever channel you're on, if if they have it. So he's flipping through the channels, flipping through the channels, and on comes Home Alone. It's the very end scene. You know, when the mom and Kevin reunite, and the dad comes in and says, "Kevin, Kevin, cómo están?" <laughs> I think this movie might be really good in Spanish, but I haven't gone back and watched it. Do we have? Con- I, I'm still looking up Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I don't have confirmation because yeah. I, I actually just went to IMDb and went to Woody Harrelson and put in uh, Home Alone, and I do not see it coming up unless it's just like one of those like random cameos that's uncredited. Try to find a screenshot. It's I see it, but again, I read it on Reddit. So mm-hmm. and it was from KJ TPT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, did you do it? No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't know. Karma on Reddit, I wish. Uh-huh. 
So you're not you're not the only one who 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 thinks that, but I, I'm seeing mm-hmm. nothing official. What is the character's name? Oh, now we now this this podcast is now about solving this problem. <laughs> there are many things that say the policeman in Home Alone kind of looks like Woody Harrelson in drag. So I don't know if this is legitimate. I think we should definitely spend the rest of movie rant on this item now. <laughs> Questions I was not looking for an answer for. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so we, I, I got, we've, we've determined it may or may not be Woody Harrelson and drag. Yeah, good. <laughs> the The answer to anything can be would not or it is or isn't Woody Harrelson and drag, right? Yeah, another interesting thing with, with this movie is I, I'm kind of interested in, because it's a, it's a collection of kind of like genres too. This movie borrows from a lot of different types of comedy. I was wondering, what would you say the genre of this movie is? Because it's most expressly farce, right? But that's like 15 minutes of an hour and 45 minute movie. I don't have anything really big to contribute here. I think it's just straight up comedy stamp done. I'd say family, family comedy. One of the other things that I was researching when I saw this was Joe Pesci's role. He actually wasn't the first choice. His fellow Goodfellas actor... Robert De Niro was also in the running for this uh, role, but it ended up going to Joe Pesci. And something that I, I thought was interesting, even the character, Harry, is actually based off of Orson Welles, specifically his character in The Third Man. I believe his name is Harry. Yeah, Harry Lime. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know the connection because The Third Man is coming up later in our calendar and i have not yet watched it yet tom i, I know you're familiar with this movie he, harry lime is a no <laughs> i mean harry lime's a crook yeah that must be the connection but harry, yes. lime, harry lime is also like a smooth brilliant um sort of mid-atlantic vocal sounding european trotting sophisticant he's a very he's he's not home invasion criminal he is uh he's closer to white collar no gold tooth <laughs> no no not from what i remember uh he he's also his crime is also devastating what he's doing is actually terrifying as opposed to you know oh we fell over you know that, I, that type I think of thing. Yeah. i think when i'm reading this a little further I think the connection is just the name. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That he happens to be Mm -hmm. a criminal and that's where that specific Harry came from. But I, I didn't, I wanted to at least bring it up today because I, I know we are going to be covering that movie soon on the podcast. And I I thought maybe since you're the one who recommended it. Yeah. Harry Lime is selling fake medicine in a post world war two Vienna, which is like giving people, illnesses that sounds just like the wet bandits <laughs> yeah right <laughs> it's just the same um what's interesting though apparently uh, we also went to so they wanted to give it to de niro who turned it down they wanted to give it to john lovitz who turned it down so they gave it to joe pesci who is always only somewhat interested in acting he's much more of a, a singer um and this movie uh he he requested the schedule change so that he could go golfing in the morning because <laughs> he he treated this movie with that level of seriousness and it was out at the same time within two months of uh goodfellas for which he would win the oscar so it's a a, a weird few months for for mr pesci who 
didn't really get his start in, I think until age 37 in Hollywood. And he had two movies around the same time that are, are hits. Yeah. You know? He had his biggest that's... hit and his Oscar winner. Oh, that's great. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the watching of Home Alone. Christine, congratulations for taking down this episode. Uh, thank thank you. you so much for joining us today. It was a blast. Thank you, guys. We had a lot. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks to our evasive editor, Cage J, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from 2006, Colossal. It'll be a first watch for me. Looking forward to it. Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website, YouTube channel, or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia to find the B-Side where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample. All right, and welcome back to B-Side. We have, for only the second time on B-Side, our guest today, KJ, and we are going to continue on our conversation about Home Alone. I think we're going to be looking at... um, a few different characteristics, farce, slapstick, probably this idea that KJ had on uh, the fantasy and the mundane and how the Home Alone movie um, reveals the, the kind of the fantasy before jumping back into the mundane. It yeah. is. It is the first time we are, are free from the reins of um, the uh, strict rules mm-hmm. of talking pictures trivia, and we are, you know, we can say anything, yep. really. Yeah, we're, we're just talking a lot, and everybody loves that. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, yes. <laughs> so let's start off with where the, this... Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To hear more on the B-Side.